0: if you remember, this sermon is all about how we live this kingdom life in this fallen world. And so we're reading our next section. One second. Hey, Cal, do you mind shutting that door for me? Thank you so much. Okay, the sermon text can be found in your bulletin. It is Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. No one quite knows how it started. It was a bad relationship between two families. They just didn't like each other. And so when the opportunity for a conflict occurred over the ownership of a pig, they decided to take it to the next level. You see, the Hatfields were from West Virginia but the McCoys were from Kentucky. The McCoys were sympathetic to the Union Army, while the Hatfields were sympathetic to the Confederates. They just plain didn't like each other. And so skirmishes developed into battles, children were taught to hate the McCoys if they were Hatfields, and vice versa. In fact, it got so bad at one time between these two large families that it ended up with the governors of both states calling in the militia to quell the uprising. Two people, patriarchs hating each other, becoming enemies and passing that down created a conflict that went on for decades and decades and decades. The result, many deaths and resentment. Well, we're all familiar with the concept of enemies, aren't we? Sometimes it's racial conflict. We know the story of the Jews and the Palestinians, the Shiites and the Sunnis, Blacks and whites. Sometimes it's racial, sometimes it's political. I've never seen a more polarized spectrum now than the Democrats and the Republicans who can't seem to agree across the aisle. But sometimes it's also personal, isn't it? It's that person in the office who you always seem to conflict with, who seems bent on your destruction. It's the high school rival you have that's always challenging you, who's always threatening to steal your girl. It's your friend that you once had, but have had a falling out with, and now they're your sworn enemy. Indeed, it may even be familiar. You know, some of the enemies that we have are in our very own home. The question is, how are we to deal with enemies? The world gives us a formula that's very simple. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever they do to us, we do for them. And the result of that is all of the war and conflict and genocide and divorce and all of the things that we see around the world. But the truth of the matter is though we seek to inflict damage on the other person it affects us as well. For we're left with bitterness and anger. We can't get past this relationship. It was Confucius who said, he who seeks vengeance must dig two graves, one for his enemy and one for himself. How do we get past our enemies? How do we get past hatred? Amidst all of this noise, we hear the quiet words of Jesus, who says, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Such a radical teaching in a culture that's bent on an eye for an eye, a culture that says, don't get mad, get even. And here is Jesus saying, you've got it wrong. Don't hate your enemy, love them. Don't curse them, pray for them. How can we follow such teaching? How can we come up with such love? The reality is it's not human love. It's God-like love. To love our worst enemy is to be most like God. In fact, the proof of our sonship is the love that we have for our enemies. Well, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. So we need to cover a couple topics. We need to ask the first question, whom shall I love? Who is my enemy? How far do I need to go? Whom shall I love? But then we have to move on to our second point, how should I love them? How am I supposed to show this love to these people? And then we have to answer the third and most difficult question, how can I love them? How can I overcome the bitterness and resentment of But to love our worst enemy is to be most like God. All right, let's tackle our first question. Who shall I love? We see the teaching here. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As Jesus said, you have heard it was said. Now keep in mind, every time Jesus says you have heard it was said, he's not talking about the scripture. He's talking about the Pharisees' interpretation of the scripture. Whenever he talks about the scriptures, he always says it is written. Rather, he's talking about the Pharisees' teaching. And the Pharisees took all of the information from the Old Testament and they boiled it down to this one teaching. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They took as their text Leviticus 19.18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now that's the first part of this teaching by the Pharisees. The second part that says, hate your enemy, you can't find it anywhere in Scripture. Well, how did they come up with that? They said it was simple deduction. If you shouldn't bear revenge or a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor, then if they're not your neighbor, it would make sense that you should hate them. That's a logical flaw at best. Sort of like saying a pig is an animal, a duck is an animal, a pig is a duck doesn't make any sense, but nonetheless, that's the thing that they decided. You see, they ignore the other parts of Scripture, even in this chapter. For instance, in Leviticus 19.10, it says, And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord. And then he says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now why did the Pharisees draw the line this way? Why did they go ahead and mark off, this is who I shall love, and this is who I shall not love? In many ways, don't we do the same thing? Remember the lunchroom in high school? Got my own little table, my own little friends. We're the insiders Everyone else is the outsiders. And so we find our little silos that we can fit in and everybody else is outside. Well, the question that they were dealing with at this particular time in Jesus' life was this. Who is in the in crowd? See, if it was all about who is my neighbor, all about who is a blue blood, they all were in trouble because they all had been Sent, uh, expatriated if you will to Babylon and to other locations and they'd come back and they'd intermingled with other races and so the question was who is the true Jew who is the true Israelite that's the reason in Luke 10 26 that an expert of the law came to Jesus to ask this question teacher uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life Jesus says love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and love your neighbor You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's what the teacher of the law. But then it says the teacher of the law wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus tells this famous story, right? A person's walking along from Jerusalem to Jericho, presumably an Israelite. He gets accosted by a band of robbers who beat him up, leave him half for dead on the side of the road. And lo and behold, a Levite walks by And he looks at him and he crosses to the other side. And then a priest comes by and sees this broken person but proceeds to move on along as well. But lo and behold, a Samaritan comes along and a Samaritan has mercy on this person. Now we need to understand the weight of what Jesus said when he said Samaritan. He would have heard boos and hisses from the crowd even when he said Samaritan. Because Samaritans hated Israelites, Jews and Jews hated Samaritans. See, the Samaritans, they believed, were an intermingled race. They had been expatriated, taken off more than them, and brought back. And so they weren't true Jews, though the truth was they both were in the same place. But they preferred to say, they're out and we're in. The Samaritans believed that the place to worship was on Mount Gerizim in Samaria not on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The Samaritans believe that we have the true priesthood. And it was the Samaritans who had sold out when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, had come and had told everyone, Jew that you need to churn your temples into worshiping Zeus. The Samaritans had complied, but the Israelites had rebelled. And so the Jews said, Samaritans, bad. Samaritans, Jews, bad. In fact, kids were taught from a young age to throw rocks and spit on the other person. Not that different from Jews and Palestinians. And yet, Jesus shows that it's the Samaritan that shows mercy, that cleans and washes the wounds, that takes the person to an inn, that pays the money, that makes sure that they're taken care of. And he asks the question to the teacher of the law, which one was a neighbor to this man? the one who showed mercy go and do what does this mean if a Samaritan is a neighbor then everyone's a neighbor see what Jesus is saying is your enemy is your neighbor and your neighbor is your enemy they're the exact same person the person who you hate and the person who hates you the business partner who was wrong to you, and 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 did wrong things to you? The husband who left you, that race that you don't like, that boss that fired you, all of them who you consider your enemies—they are like friends because there is no line. See, the distinctions aren't there; they're not there physically. From a DNA perspective, we're all 99.9% like each other. And in fact, that .1, uh, 84% of that is from within populations, and that last little bit is from outside populations. We're all like each other physically. Additionally, we're like each other spiritually, that we've all been made in the image of God. These are all reasons we can't draw the line, but the main reason is this that God doesn't draw the line. He makes His sun rise on the wicked and the good. He makes His rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives what we call common grace to all peoples on the earth. The breath we breathe. The sun that warms us. The white blood cells that fight off infection. All blessings and graces that God gives a lot of them to people that hate God, that could care less about God, that worship other gods, or worship no God at all. So if God can do this, we can also. See we're just like the Pharisees, aren't we? We want to draw the boundary to exclude those that we don't like. But God doesn't give us that option some of you are familiar with the age-long conflict that's been going on in rwanda between the hutus and the tutsis some of you may have seen the movie hotel rwanda that depicted some of this well if you play the take back about the hutus and the tutsis what you'll discover is they're the exact same people you can't tell them apart in the beginning hutus and the tutsis dealt not with race it dealt with class the, the Tutsis were the ones that had the cattle, and the Hutus were farmers, and so the Tutsis were a little bit richer. And so it began with class. But when the Belgians came in to Rwanda and Burundi, they decided to make a permanent distinction. And so they passed out, and the main people carry identification cards. Sometimes just randomly, you're a Hutu, you're a Tutsi, and just divided them up just like that. And then they favored one over the other. The smaller Tutsis got opportunities for higher education, and the Hutus did not. And slowly they were taught to hate each other and become enemies. It became a flashpoint with the much larger Hutus deciding that it was time to wipe out the Tutsis. And what came along was a genocide of unparalleled proportions. In only 100 days, 1,174,000 Hutus, Tutsis were killed by the Hutus. That's 10,000 every day, 400 every hour, 7 every minute. The result of enemies that could not forgive one another. We hear some of that and we say, whoa, 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 that could never be like us. You know what, those people were just like us. The question I have to ask you is this, who have you written off? Who have you drawn the line around. I love all of these people, all of them except for one. Maybe it's that friend of yours, that close friend that you used to enjoy sweet fellowship with, but then they turned on you. They shared a secret that they shouldn't have. They said something they shouldn't have. You questioned their motives, and that relationship fractured. And now one who was a friend is now an enemy. And you've drawn the line and they're on the outside but jesus says there is no line in fact we must love everyone even our enemies that we may be sons of god what jesus is saying is this not is not causal we don't love so we can be sons of god rather it's evidential rather it's proof of who we are because we are exhibiting not a human love but a godlike because the reality is we don't have that kind of love but God does to love our worst enemy is to be most like God and the proof of our sonship is the love that we have for our enemies truth be told we love Jesus as much as the person that we love least whom shall we love everybody well this brings me to my second point if we have to love everyone we have got to ask the question how should we love them? I'm just like a Pharisee, aren't I? Okay, i got to love them. How do I have to love them? Where's the line, if you will? Okay, what's the line here? Well, Jesus gets very specific, doesn't he? In fact, if you read Luke 6, which is a parallel teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus expands the treatment of this subject a little more. For in this subject, we see love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But Jesus adds in Luke 6... Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. So we've got doing good, we've got blessing, we've got praying, we've got loving. The first thing I want us all to see is what Jesus is essentially doing is I want you to play the opposite game. Anyone ever play the opposite game? Somebody says something, you say the exact opposite of it. Jesus is saying whatever they bring to you in hatred, you respond in love in a variety of different ways. The first is doing. Notice, do good to those who hate you. This is even from the Old Testament, Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Imagine taking this concept of doing good to your enemies. Imagine your enemy looking out of their house, and there you are on their front lawn, raking the yard. Oh my gosh. Imagine them sitting in their cubicle at work, and lo and behold, you show up with a Starbucks coffee in your hand. I was just in the neighborhood, so I thought I'd bring you one by. Doing good, not just feeling good. But if we're supposed to do good, we're even supposed to do good with our words. We're supposed to bless them. You know the statement, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is patently untrue. Words, in fact, are probably the best weapons that one can wield. But words are also some of the greatest agents of healing that one can use. This word here about blessing in the, in the New Testament in the Greek is eulogia, from where we get the word eulogy. you Eu meaning good, logia meaning word. Eulogy. Anyone ever been to a eulogy in a funeral? And the guy may have been a total scoundrel, total just bad news guy. But somebody gets up and they find a way to eulogize him. Because truth be told, you can always say and find something good to say about someone. He's saying to speak well of them even when they curse you. In the Old Testament, because the word doesn't exactly translate into Greek, the Hebrew word is barach, which means to bend the knee. It means to give them honor, to give them respect. See, blessing in the Old Testament was a blessing. You could give a blessing from man. That I would bless you, but you can also give a blessing from God to man. And so, when you come up and you say, "The Lord bless you and keep you," the Lord make His face shine upon you, the Lord give you peace. You're bringing a blessing from God to man. Can you imagine that you're around the water cooler, and lo and behold, one of your friends comes along and tells you what she said about you in that meeting. And how she was tearing you down and your work. And how do you respond? You know, I really like her. I think she's really good at doing this and this and this. I think she looked really pretty today. And I wish we could be better friends. Everybody's looking, going, what are you talking about? It's an eye for an eye world. And you're seeking to bless them. Imagine living like that, giving a blessing for We're supposed to bless them, we're supposed to do good, but we're also supposed to pray for them. It's one thing to speak a good word to them from God. It's another to speak a good word to God for them. When we go to them and go to God and we say, God, I pray for this person. Bless their life. Watch over their marriage. Help them to have success in the different things that they're doing. Help them to be healthy and whole we're speaking love to God for them how can we do this the question we need to ask is how can we provide this love let me explain to you we only have really one word for love in English but there are four words for love in Greek you're familiar with some of them the first eros from where we get the word erotic love is a passionate love love between a man and a woman That word is not used, eros, in the New Testament. The other word is storage, which is family love. The love that parents have for their children. The love that children have for their parents. That's not used in the New Testament either, though it could be. The next word is philos. We're familiar with philos. Friendship. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philharmonic, the love of music. This is friendship love affection of brothers and friends that we have for one another. But the love that Jesus is talking about here is agape love. Agape is a love of the will. See, philos has an object to it. I love because you love me. But agape has no object. Philos is based on feeling, but agape is based on will. Philos is based on affection, but agape has no effect. Philos is feeling, but agape is action. Love without variables. Philos is human love, but agape is divine love. It reasons that we can love them and not even like them. When Jesus speaks about love, excuse me, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he uses the word agape. Agape is patience. Agape is kind. Agape keeps no record of wrongs. It always delights in the truth. It always protects. Agape never fails. See, the key concept here is more. If you love them because they love you, what reward is that? Even the tax collectors do that. Even they show their philos because they're loving people who love them. No, you must give more than that. You must give agape love. You must focus on the will and not the heart. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them. But if you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking them. You see, true agape is not based on their love; it's based on His love. It's not a human love; it's a higher love—the love that we need. Some of you are familiar with the story of Corey Tinbu. Corey was a Dutch Christian, and her, her with her family lived during the Nazi uh, uh, time, and they were sympathetic to the Jews as Christians, and so they used to hide them and try to help them get away. In fact, there was a famous book she wrote in movie called The Hiding Place, which talked about Corey Ten Boom. Well, an informant sold them out, and they were arrested. Her father was killed, and her and Betsy were taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp, where he saw her, his sister, her sister waste away and die. Then Corey Ten Boom, after the war, tells a story about forgiving it was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, spoken moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear most in that bitter, bombed-out land and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There was never a question after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, And silence, collected their wraps, and Simons left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Now he was in front of me, right here, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? (coughs) but I remembered him in the leather props from his belt I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk he was saying I was a guard there no he did not remember me but since that time he went on I have become a Christian I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well Freulein again the hand came out will you forgive me And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy, my sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there hand held out. But to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I had ever to do. For I had to do it, I knew that the message that God forgives had a prior condition That we forgive those who have injured us if you not forgive them jesus said neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses i knew it not only as a commandment from god but as a daily experience since the end of the war i had had a home in Holland for victims of nazi brutality those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives but those who nursed that bitterness remained in woods. it was simple it's horrible, isn't it? And still I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the fuel. And so woodedly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Who is the person that you hate the most? Who is the person that has done the most wrong to you? And you're holding on to that anger, that bitterness, cherishing it, even protecting it. How can I forgive? How can I love? We need, my friends, a higher love. A supernatural love, but we must step out with an act of our will, not our emotions. For God's commands, followed in God's ways, will not lack God's resources. And so we too, like Corey Ten Boom, must make a decision that love is more powerful than hatred, that blessing is more powerful than bitterness. We must make a decision to live differently to give our heart to the Lord, and to give our actions to our fellow man. We must make a decision, each one of us, to respond in faith. For some of us, it's proactive. It's going to that person, going to their yard, going to their office, and proactively loving them. For some of us, it's reactive. We don't have to respond, but waiting for that opportunity. For some, it's doing good. For some, it's blessing. And for some, it's just simply praying. If you supply the action, God will supply the love. Because to love our worst enemy is to be most like God. The proof of our sonship is the love that we have for our enemies. Well, we've talked about whom shall I love. We've talked about how should I love. And now I finish with my final point, how can I love? We may know the methods now, but we need the motive. And Jesus says something very weird at the end of this passage in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can we be perfect? Is he saying that we literally have to be as God himself? Is this command something that's been placed out of reach, almost like a cruel thing saying, hey, you need to be like this, but you can't? No, if we read in the proper context, we see Jesus is not saying that we must be perfect now. In fact, just earlier he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How can you hunger for righteousness if you already have it? Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How can you seek if you already have found No, it was Paul who showed us when he said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. sufferings. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that from which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See, he teaches us that perfection is a process, that God is growing and reshaping us into His likeness when one day we shall be perfect. Well, that doesn't answer the question, how can we be perfect if we're not yet perfected? Perfected. The answer is this, that Jesus has given us two perfections. Number one, a perfect law to live by. This ends the sixth of the sixth antithesis that Jesus has been talking about. You have heard that it is said, but I say to you. See, what Jesus is saying is, your, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, You shall not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you cannot live by the standard of the world. You must live by my standard. Because my standard is the true standard. So you must walk in the true standard. We must live, we must look intently, as James says, into the perfect law that gives freedom. And continuing to do it, not forgetting what we've heard, but doing it, that we may be blessed in what we do. And so we must live in Christ's perfect law. We must know it. There's no point of having a plan if we don't use it. But we can no longer make our own laws and create our own boundaries. One of the greatest blessings that I have, one of the greatest decisions I've ever made, is every day for a half hour, I walk into a room with God's Word and I sit down and I read whether I want to or not. I open myself up to God's word, and God opens himself up to me. For this is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Have you made a commitment in your own life that that is the standard by which I will live? If you have, then make your life reflect your heart. He gives us a perfect law to live by, but he gives us also a perfect love to love by. See, before we can give to these people, we must receive Jesus has given us His love. And what He asks us to do for others, He has already done for us. Because the story of this is just a rehearsal, isn't it? Of us who were the enemies of God. As Paul says in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, like the rest we were by, uh, by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by his grace that you have been saved. See the cross is the ultimate expression of agape. The cross Jesus Christ turns us through the cross from enemies into sons and he implants his love into our hearts. Romans says this, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into his heart into our hearts by the holy spirit whom he has given us. So my question for you is this. Have you received this love? Have you surrendered to the love of Jesus Christ? Have you moved from being an enemy of God by accepting his love and becoming a son and a daughter? If you have, you love not to become sons of God, but precisely because you are. It is God in Jesus Christ that gives you the power to transform your hatred into kindness, your bitterness into graciousness, your hate into love. His love is all the love we need to love our enemies the way God wants us to. As 2 Samuel says, it is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. You may struggle with this sermon You may struggle to let go of the hatred and bitterness that you have. But my counsel to you is this don't look to the other person, because you may not ever get anything from them. But look to Jesus. His love for you, his example in life and death, and his love in you will give you what you need to love your enemy. I'm not saying it's easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus either. But it was worth it. He loved us to salvation. And you may just do the same for your enemy. To love our enemy is to be most like God. And the proof of our sonship is the love we have for our enemies. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful picture. That you don't ask us to do the impossible. For you have gone before us. That while we were yet enemies of God, that you got up on a cross and you died. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Your love is the perfect love, and in your love we can be complete. We need your supernatural love to break through the boundaries of bitterness and hatred, to bust through the lines that we have drawn by isolating, suffocating other people outside of our realm of grace. We pray for your blessing, Lord, because that's all we need and that's all we have. Indeed, it's all we can count. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.